I'm agnostic about the what, but I'm very, very, very focused on the how. And the how is this idea of agency, the ability of people to shape the things that happen to them in their lives collectively. Historically, if you look for any major social change throughout time, marriage equality, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, that's how change happens. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. Health inequities in the U.S. are pretty easy to flag, but the differences become even more stark if you grew up in a country with universal health care and then moved to the United States. The move from Canada to the U.S. at 22 set Dr. Tony Eiten on a lifelong path to understanding and addressing the contributions of race, wealth, education, geography, and most importantly, power. On health. He leads one of the most ambitious efforts to improve community health and equity in America, the California Endowment's Building Healthy Communities Initiative. Dr. Eitan and I talk about the ABCs of health equity in California and the need to move public health away from medicine and towards its more radical and community-oriented roots. So please welcome Dr. Tony Eitan to The Other 80. Welcome to The Other 80, Tony. It's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Claudia. Thank you for having me. One of the things I wanted to start with is, as I looked through what you've written and what you've said, there are so many phrases that jump out that are just very compelling. One I think that you've talked about quite a bit is the phrase, your zip code matters more than your genetic code for informing your health. What made you really hone in on that insight that zip code is so important? Yeah. I grew up as a black American in Canada until I was 22 and then um, decided to go to Johns Hopkins Medical School in East Baltimore. And so I literally, you know, got on a plane, flew to Baltimore, Washington International Airport and took a taxi to the medical school campus. And found out where I was being housed, which was in this dormitory across the street. And as I was going to the dormitory, I was just looking around me and noticing just conditions that I had never seen before. It, it looked, quite frankly, like there had been a war. There were bombed out buildings and you know that were boarded up and, and other buildings that were just brick facades. If you stepped around behind the building, there was nothing there but a, a pile of rubble. And on the streets, there were cars that were up on jacks. There were garbage piled up to your waist, big rats and mangy dogs running around. And I was horrified. I literally didn't know what I was looking at. And it was so different than the expectation I had from hearing about Johns Hopkins that I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't harmonize those two ideas. But it was many years later after medical school and training um, that I became the health officer for Alameda County, California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I had an opportunity now to kind of see how this played out in data. So we, we took the almost 500,000 death certificates over a period of about 55 years in Alameda County, and we analyzed them. We put them into a database um, because on every death certificate, you know, essentially what that person died of their race, ethnicity, 
their address. And you could take that information and you can map it. And so we mapped hundreds of thousands of death certificates over a long period of time. And we, we found these fascinating phenomena. One is that there was a 22-year life expectancy difference between the flatlands of Oakland and the hills of Oakland. And we knew in the flatlands, you had disproportionately lower income people, disproportionately uh, people of color, uh, mostly African-Americans and, and to some extent Latinos. And in the hills, you had disproportionately white people and, and then a little bit of a Asian disproportionality as well. And you could see these dramatic uh, effects between neighboring census tracts, neighboring neighborhoods, like contiguous, where you would see a 10, 15, 20-year life expectancy difference between two neighborhoods that were, for all intents and purposes, next to each other. And trying to understand what was happening there became sort of the fascination of my career. And so we did map it. We mapped it, and it ended up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, it led to, in part, a documentary called Unnatural Causes that was filmed. It became a PBS four-hour documentary series. Um, it stimulated a lot of conversation. Our, our health department was getting calls from all over the world trying to understand you know, what, what they were seeing and, and what we were saying was at the root of this. And quite honestly, we were unprepared for all the attention that it got. We basically said, look, this is the data. The data speaks for itself. Make of it what you will. And we learned later that we needed to have answers and policy proposals to sort of get underneath this because we we ended up replicating that study in, in Cuyahoga County, Cleveland, and in Baltimore, New York City, in Philadelphia, in uh, numerous cities. And we found the same phenomena everywhere we looked, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 30 plus years of life expectancy difference between neighborhoods in the same city. So we concluded that this is the American phenomena. This is how we stratify opportunity in this country. It's by place and the, the material conditions between neighborhoods in the same city can be dramatically different. Um, like a, a so-called third world country versus a first world country in the same city. And of course, those same dynamics, those same neighborhood differences played out in the vaccination rates and the access to PPE and all of the COVID-related trends that we saw. So that was one track I kind of wanted to lay before we talked about the work you've done at the California Endowment. The other one is something from your TED bio, which is an equally compelling phrase. You say that reinvigorating democracy is the first step to improving health in America. And I just would love to have you kind of explicate that very compelling, but yet not altogether clear uh, statement. What do you mean by that? In the process of doing this work, I and my colleagues have had some just real epiphanies. It's this idea that robust participatory democracy actually yields more equitable policy outcomes. And if you think about it, you can sort of think about the other state, which is basically marginalized communities. And the history of the United States is such that racism and our history of first slavery and then basically apartheid with respect to African-Americans, but also with respect to other populations who have been marginalized and essentially steered away from resources and opportunities, um, 
that history is a history of exclusion. It's the goal is to essentially keep people away from resources and from power. And at the end of the day, that's how you oppress somebody. You essentially deny them the ability to exercise their naturally given talents and, and, and skills. And so racism was a system of exclusion from opportunity. And the result of that is that you get political decision-making in communities that essentially steers resources away from people who are disfavored and disempowered. So, you know, simple things like, is there a park in your neighborhood? Well, you can, you can actually assess the likelihood of having a park in your neighborhood based on the demographics of the neighborhoods, you know, in that community, because the system would prefer certain types of populations and invest resources in those populations in those neighborhoods in which they lived. And because we had such a rigid system of apartheid or racial segregation, it was easy for government to do that. If you're in power, you recognize that some communities just have more ability to get you out of power. So you would essentially try to curry favor with those communities. And disproportionately, those communities were white communities. And the ones that couldn't really do much about your political future were communities of color. So so right there, you you can see how politics, and this is the other thing we would say, is that health is political, small p political, not partisan. But um, if you define politics as the struggle over the allocation of limited and precious social goods, like things like a grocery store in your neighborhood or a park or a bike lane or sidewalks or potable water or, or broadband infrastructure. These are health protective resources um, that in theory should be distributed in an equitable manner. And an equitable manner doesn't mean an equal manner even. It means according to need for those resources. And what we know is that low-income communities have a greater need for those kinds of resources and high-income communities. And what we see is the inverse. You see these resources disproportionately allocated to high-income communities. So that's why we think our democracy is not functioning. It's not, it's not producing equitable outcomes because power is skewed across those that have the ability to participate in decision-making. And so our work is focused on trying to build uh, power in a critical mass of people in low-income communities so that they can more effectively participate in democracy. And we've seen that when we do that and when communities have more voice and more power, you see very different decision-making at the local community level, at the regional level, and ultimately at the state level as well. So now I'm going to take us to 2010 when the California Endowment, with you as a senior vice president, launched the Building Healthy Communities Initiative to improve community health in California. And so those two tracks that we laid, the track around zip code in place and the track around democracy, I think came into play in a really important way in this initiative. So I'll take you through a series of questions around this. The first is simply what was the thesis? What was the thesis that drove the development of that new initiative? Yeah, the core thesis was essentially that power matters in health. 
And when we talk about power, we're talking about the ability to essentially decide what happens in a community. So we're talking about essentially community level power, what we refer to as community agency. And we basically theorize that if we could build social, political, and economic power in a critical mass of people in 14 low-income communities that have documented uh, health disparities, that we could improve the health status of those populations over a 10-year period. And so unlike most of what are essentially created as health interventions at the community level, we weren't thinking that there was something that we needed to do to people. In other words, it wasn't like increasing access to health care or, you know, enhancing the quality of public health education. This was fundamentally about unleashing the power of communities to essentially more effectively hold accountable those instrumentalities of, of government that shaped how resources were distributed. And it's funny, Claudia, that people said you're doing something really radical. The reality is, if you look at the history of the United States and you look at any meaningful social change that's happened, you know, even seatbelts, you know, or mothers against drunk driving, it has all come through organized community efforts to change policy. And so you can also look at the history of environmental health, which is fundamentally about organizing communities to resist uh, noxious uh, siting of, of various different types of land uses um, to protect the health of communities. So what we were doing was basically just extending that definition of environment to include the social and the physical and the political environment. Um, and in learning from the histories of environmental justice and the histories of all the major social change that's happened in the United States. So it wasn't all that radical. It was just sort of a recognition that health is like everything else. Uh, there's a role uh, in how we organize our society that, that essentially has profound health impacts. And if we want to undo those impacts, we, we can't just try to repair them after they've been created. We can prevent them through good social policy. How did you go about shifting power to communities in those 14 places? Yeah, so it, you know, it, it sounds like, wow, what is this, you know, sorcery you're doing? <laughs> um, but the reality is that if you spend time in low-income communities, you recognize that folks don't lack for ideas. It's not like they don't understand what's happening to them. They, they're, they're actually quite uh, thoughtful about what needs to change. And what they don't have is essentially the resources and the time because they're so busy focusing on survival. And so what we were able to do, and, and again, it was very simple, is bring community organizers. We used as our laboratory, essentially 14 communities, and then a sort of a larger statewide effort. So really 15 theaters of action. And we brought community organizers generally, you know, that were kind of sourced from that local community itself. And we resourced them. We gave them money to hire organizers like, you know, like Barack Obama was a community <laughs> organizer. He was. <laughs> so we hired a bunch of Barack Obamas, you know, across these 14 and, and statewide as well uh, places. And we set them to work 
in building power. And what they did and did very naturally was they identified natural community leaders and they created an opportunity for those leaders to essentially recruit other similarly situated people. And they built what's called a base. Those bases operated in those communities and they reflected those communities. And they would invite people to essentially participate in setting an agenda to improve the health of that community. And that agenda was pretty wide open. We, we didn't prescribe what they had to work on. We let them work on whatever it took. And I used to be notorious for saying that I'm agnostic about the what, but I'm very, very, very focused on the how. And the how is this idea of agency, the ability of people to shape the things that happen to them in their lives collectively. And as I said, you know, historically, if you look for any major social change throughout time, marriage equality, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, that's how change happens. And so we weren't doing anything that was unheard of, but we did something that was very basic. And if you want to disrupt the status quo, you have to change the inputs into that status quo if you want different outputs. And so that was our our recognition that the inputs essentially into the status quo governance uh, structure in these 14 places needed to be disrupted and changed. And we needed more inputs from communities that heretofore had been essentially excluded or at least marginalized from political decision-making. And so that's what we did. We built their muscle to show up at city council, at the board of supervisors, and to push for policy change. And it works. What are some of the key outputs or outcomes that you observed? When we met with our communities, and again, uh, I, I maintained a posture of agnosticism in terms of whatever it is that they decided they wanted to work on. And some of our communities pushed for this notion of school climate. In other words, kids that were being suspended and expelled from schools, disproportionately African-American and and Native American boys, although some girls as well, from very young ages, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, being suspended multiple times. And when we looked at the data, we saw that, you know, 800,000 California children were being suspended and expelled from schools every year in California, which is more than the number that graduate. And our communities raised this issue with us as a, as a health issue, that these kids' mental health and well-being was being compromised as they were being driven from the educational system, which is ostensibly a safe, nurturing space, into the criminal justice system, this whole notion of a school-to-prison pipeline. And so we initially resisted this issue. We thought, well, we're a health foundation. That sounds like an education issue. But our communities, particularly the young people, kept pushing on this issue. And eventually we embraced it because we recognized that they were right. And when you look at the data, just one suspension before the ninth grade reduces the likelihood of a child graduating from high school by 30%. Wow. And many of these kids were being suspended multiple times. So they were essentially being pushed out of that educational pathway into a very hostile criminal justice pathway. We saw this sort of policing encroaching further and further into the schools in a way that kids were being now criminalized for 
what had before been considered essentially the normal behavior that we all sort of participated in when we were in middle school and high school. Kids being ticketed, given truancy tickets for being late a few minutes to school to the tune of $250, which for low-income families that don't have the money or the wherewithal to fight, this is a significant financial burden. Kids being arrested routinely on campus and handcuffed and taken to juvenile facilities. So kids were seeing this, particularly in black and brown communities. It was significant enough that the U.S. Department of Education Civil Rights Division actually started to participate in some of the work that we were doing and started enforcing consent decrees against large districts in California. And then we managed to work with our partners to pass significant legislative change to reduce the reliance of these school districts on suspensions and expulsions as a tool of, of managing so-called school discipline and, and trying to create environments that were more restorative using restorative justice practices and what are referred to as positive behavioral supports in the schools, which is a recognition of the need for trauma-informed practices because our society is traumatic to young people of color in California. It's racism is is a harm. It leaves people traumatized. And these kids bring that trauma into the school buildings and they act out like all human beings do. And the question is how do we essentially help heal these young people from that trauma so that they can more effectively and productively participate in the 21st century economy. And so we managed to drop school suspensions and expulsions in California by 60, 70%. Wow. Zeroed them out across many districts. This is the same time when you look at similar states or similar size states like Texas or Florida, where suspensions and expulsions were going in the absolute opposite direction. Yeah. When communities have the voice and resources to advocate for their own needs, they're really good at finding the lever point that's most important. Like we could be searching around for where that lever is, but they know exactly where that lever is. Yeah. I mean, I I think that our inclination, and I had the same inclination. I ran a public health department. I was educated in fancy schools that I had the sense that I had this knowledge and it was the application of this knowledge to these problems that would solve them. And and that's still somewhat true. I mean, you do need knowledge and you do need some, you know, particular expertise to be able to solve some of these thorny problems. But what you really need more than that is the partnership with communities, the fully engaged partnership with communities who can leverage the power, you know, the political power to make and enforce change. It's not enough to create a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, prospective, (laughs) experimental study and put it in a journal and think the problem is solved. You need to be able to implement that change, and you do that through democracy. And so improving the robustness and the participatory level of democracy in a local community is a health intervention. I've been spending a lot of time on this podcast talking with guests like J.C. Cooper, who are implementing large Medicaid efforts to address the social drivers of health. Every state's a little different, but the classic example would be complementing medical services with individual-based social services, whether that's housing support, food support, social connection. And my observation is that while this is, I think, 
an important opening of the aperture, it still takes an essentially individual approach. It, it treats that as a deficit that can be filled with a service. We're in conversation, let's say, with 20 states that are launching these programs in Medicaid. You're sharing the results of the work that you did in California. What types of things might they be able to do in the context of those programs that embrace what you've learned and can take this empowering community approach? Yeah. At the end of Building Healthy Communities, we ended up totaling up how much we spent. It was $1.8 billion uh, across a period of about 12 years. And that sounds like a lot of money. It's not a lot of money in California. We're a big state with a lot of people. And so what we learned, I like to simplify to these three things, the three ingredients for health equity in California boil down to A, B, C. A stands for agency. Agency is what I talked about earlier, which is basically power. It's the ability at the community level to essentially hold systems accountable for equitable outcomes. The B stands for belonging. Belonging in many ways, to my definition, is basically the opposite of racism. Racism is designed to keep people out, to exclude them, to marginalize them, to dehumanize them. Belonging is the opposite. Belonging is is the ability in a community to essentially have your story known, to have your humanity uh, recognized by others, to recognize that our faiths are inextricably intertwined with each other, and that you know our well-being is is dependent on the well-being of others. And belonging is shaped through narrative, through stories about who belongs. And C is essentially fundamental conditions, or I like to refer to it as the social contract. And the social contract is basically those investments in all of our well-being, like universal health care, universal child care, universal paid sick leave, emphasis on the word universal. And when you look at you know OECD countries or other Western developed countries, they all have made long-term investments in healthcare, childcare, paid leave, and a variety of other policies. Many of them invested in these things post-World War II, after Europe was bombed to smithereens, essentially. And they recognize that they have shared vulnerability and need to make deep investments in the well-being of all. The United States took a very different sort of lesson from World War II. We weren't really bombed other than Pearl Harbor. And we felt like we were the saviors to the world. So we doubled down on some policies that were sort of exclusionary. We built the transcontinental highway system. We facilitated investments in white flight and the hollowing out of of the urban core. We invested in the GI Bill, which led to a whole host of discriminatory implementation practices for African-Americans and others. The takeaway from our work was as simple as ABC, agency, belonging, and changing fundamental conditions. And we think that that applies to Medi-Cal and the implementation of Medi-Cal across the country, that in order for people to essentially have a sense that they are partners in the process of improving the health of communities, in a system, which ostensibly should be the goal of Medi-Cal, it should be about health, not just the extension of health care. We have to create essentially discretionary resources for communities to make investments in the health of it, of their own communities. 
it can't just be about directives about social services. What you described earlier is a phenomenon that we've seen over and over and over again, which is the medicalization of social services. The medical model basically treats individuals and tries to manage either their behaviors, their access to healthcare, or their genes, quite frankly. It's completely ignorant as to the context in which people are operating that essentially create the stressors in their lives. Another state policy change that's coming down the pike in California is a really major investment in youth and adolescent mental health, which I think has come out of the advocacy and the work and the organizing of probably many of the people you work with and others in the state. So taking this same set of ABCs in the same context, what is your advice to the governor and others making the decision about how to roll out this new massive in- initiative? Well, you know, again, I think ABC applies <laughs> this whole idea of kind of a story that is an inclusive story um, is very powerful and healing for young people who have felt socially isolated, discriminated against, and essentially abandoned, you know, during the the pandemic and even before the pandemic. So so there, there are a whole host of policy strategies that sort of flow from that. One is, and California has been looking at it, is trying to create ways for enhanced um, community participation and and volunteerism, for instance, looking at AmeriCorps. Let me just make a simple example. To the extent that people feel socially isolated, one of the, the antidotes to that is bringing them into sort of partnership with other similarly situated people and allowing them to participate collectively in trying to improve some condition in society. It's part of the reason that the the military has always been this great kind of social force to create equity is because you bring people from all walks of life and they get to see each other's humanity. They get to work together. They depend on each other to solve problems. Well, that notion comes from this sense of belonging. They they shed their prior identities and become part of this new unique identity, which is an us. It's a it's a sense of something larger than themselves, something that is is working towards sort of a, a larger set of changes. We think we need to sort of embrace that philosophy in creating programmatic strategies in California and in, in the United States, which allow for young people in particular to come together to work together in exchange, you know, for this work, they would get some benefits and scholarships, or they would get the equivalent of a GI bill uh, going forward. And it would have that direct benefit of essentially creating a sense of recognition of shared identity, this, this larger we that is absolutely critical. So that's one aspect of this work. And it, it flies in the face of the traditional models of mental health, which are therapists, one-on-one, individualized sessions, pharmaceutical interventions. And what we're arguing is that, yes, in some cases that may be necessary, but it's woefully insufficient to deal with the level of essentially disenchantment, uh, disengagement, social isolation that we're contending with in 2023. And we need to think differently about models that tackle the root cause of the problem. We also think that, you know, as far as C goes in the ABC, the, those fundamental conditions, that yes, 
we need universal health care. You know, yes, we need living wages. Yes, we need to invest in housing policies that that create housing as a right rather than a privilege of wealth. The C in the ABC is very important. And you, you can't do this work just by focusing on the A or just by focusing on the B. You have to do all of this work together. And it requires, a again, a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about these problems. But we think that in California, we are well on the road towards that, still with big problems. Don't get me wrong. We've got huge housing problems, you know, huge problems with income inequality. But, you know, we're well on the way to universal health care. We're almost there. We're investing in, in paid sick leave. Uh, we're investing in, in child care. Still have a long way to go there. Um, and we've certainly created a narrative of, of we in California, which is very different than the narrative we had in 1994 when we passed Prop 187 to exclude undocumented people, where 60% of Californians voted for it. So we think there are lessons to be learned in California that are a result of essentially the implementation of what amounts to ABC. Interesting. I recently had Tom Insel on the podcast. And of course, the phrase he uses is people, place, and purpose, which is very resonant. And I know he also advised uh, the governor in California. So, you know, it's so interesting coming from him, having held what I would think of as the top scientific job and mental health to turn the corner in his career and be looking at peer support and belonging and these very essential human attributes that have nothing to do with a new therapy or a new medicine. Super, super interesting. Parenthetically, I've been asked to write a paper for the Urban Institute, and they asked me to write essentially one of the intro papers around what would a health system look like that was focused on health equity. And I did this in partnership with a co-author, and we saw very little of sort of systems organized around health equity. The one big exception, and it says something about us culturally, were systems that were forged around Native American values, Mm. uh, indigenous values. And so you look at systems like the Nuka system up in in Alaska, you look at KKV in, in Hawaii, and various other efforts, and and to some extent, even the FQHC models, uh, at least the early FQHC models, which were organized around health and health equity. And, you know, those systems struggle to participate in our sort of larger healthcare system because those other systems are essentially organized around capitalistic outcomes, which are profits and managing essentially bundles of healthcare services that are delivered to payers. And and we rarely question that. Yeah. Yeah. The history of our health system came out of essentially charity. And this notion of communities coming together to build hospitals, to take care of people that were in need. Many of those systems were religious based and they have morphed into this highly commercialized enterprise, which is not interested in health. It's interested in essentially turning healthcare services into profit-making opportunities. It feels like if you take public health at its most radical core, which is to be there to create the systems for health, the tools for health, the infrastructure for health, this is its time. 
And yet I, I see often public health is not at the table. And some of that might be a similar divergence in public health to what you described in hospitals, where it's increasingly about delivering epi and delivering biostats and delivering these programmatic verticals, I would say, and not delivering health. And I think it's also because there's always been a disconnect between philanthropy, public health, medical care, and all of that. So if our goal is to have public health claim its place at the table as the radical peer to those other entities, how would they do that? What is public health's place right now and how are they going to claim that seat? Well, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I, the, for me, I, I love public health, but public health has disappointed me many times over the years because it's it's essentially tried to mimic its sort of bigger brother, the healthcare delivery system, and and kind of perform along the same stage as healthcare. And it doesn't belong on that stage. It's a very different entity. And I think where public health actually proves itself to be authentic is when it's in direct partnership with community. And it's about bringing the people who are closest to the pain into these decision-making processes so that we get true equity. We get solutions that are grounded in an understanding of how these things play out in people's lives. That's where public health is operating at its best and highest purpose. Um, And so it's not public health tools per se. It's not public health people or even public health experience. It's public health as a bridge to community that allows for these processes to essentially produce a much greater deal of equity. And you see this now in schools of public health, particularly from students, where they recognize that. Maybe some of their professors don't because tenure doesn't depend on that understanding or certainly not on on any practice related to that. But the students recognize that public health's greatest strength is the ability to service as bridge to the authentic lives of people and communities. That, quite frankly, is how you solve problems. That's how you get the best problem solved. You get the the sort of decision-making as close as possible to the so-called point of pain. And, and, and then you sort of focus on how to alleviate that friction or whatever that pain is. I went to medical school. I went to law school. I went to public health school. It wasn't until I started working in public health with leadership that was committed to putting the public back in public health that I learned how to do this work. And so I feel public health is is not just a set of academic tools or even analytic practices. It's about its commitment to authentic engagement of communities and this idea of essentially putting the people that are experiencing the inequity in a position to craft the solution. One of the things we've talked about already, but I've noticed about you is, as you said at the beginning, when talking about what's important to know about you, your ability through a phrase or a sentence or a concept to shift our thinking in a very visceral way. What have you learned about narrative and storytelling that you might share with our listeners that could help them be more effective in their work to improve health? 
Yeah, well, thanks for that question. I really appreciate that. When we started this work at the California Endowment, I, I was of the belief that communications was really important. You know, just be able to communicate what it was that we were seeing, what we were understanding, and and sort of our, our new learning. At the end of it, what I realized that it, I had that wrong. It really isn't about communications. It's about narrative. It's about the ability to tell a story about the larger we, about who we are. At the end of the day in this work, there are only two narratives, two uber stories. And one is about exclusion, and the other one is about inclusion and belonging. It's about who belongs at the end of the day. And every public policy debate underlying that policy debate is this question about who deserves, who belongs, who decides, who's in control. And those tie back to these uber narratives. And so that was the biggest learning for us in building healthy communities is that not only that narrative drives policy and policy drives conditions, but it was that narrative can change. And the example of 1994, Prop 187, California had fully embraced the exclusionary narrative. And Pete Wilson at the time rode that exclusionary narrative to a come from behind victory uh, in the gubernatorial election. And that galvanized thousands of people in California who said never again. And people got into politics, they got into policy, they got into public health, and they worked to change the narrative in California to the point where 2010, we fully embraced the Affordable Care Act. We pushed for undocumented people to be able to participate. We flipped the narrative in California, and it's not just because of demographic change. It's through hard work of people who were galvanized in that 1994 moment. So that was the lesson for us, is that narrative is not immutable. We can change the narrative, and we can do it through authentically engaging people who are closest to the point of pain. They, Their stories, their experiences create an authentic narrative, and we can we can reshape how we think about policy by letting those stories rise up and where we see our shared humanity with people who had heretofore, because of an exclusionary narrative, been dehumanized and marginalized and essentially treated as undeserving. This is hard work that can be very depressing <laughs> because there's so much room for improvement. What I find inspiring is both that visionary narrative combined with what you said before, which is this isn't rocket science. You just have to shift the way you go about it. It's not complicated, it, but it requires taking a different first step, not the same one you've already always taken. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Only that I find this work very inspiring and exciting. I mean, for me, this is this is spiritual. This is my church. It's not only interesting, but it's fun. It's fun to do this work in, in partnership with community. I encourage people to engage with communities that are on the front lines doing this work. It, you, you feel so reinvigorated about the, the beauty of our humanity. And I think there are lessons in California. California, I, mean, I, I, I like to tell people when I'm traveling outside of California and giving a speech or whatever, I say, my name's Tony, I'm from California, that means I'm from the future. What happens in California today will happen to you tomorrow. 
And I encourage people to watch California if they're looking for inspiration and hope about the future. Let's close off where we began. What's clear is that inequity in America results from persistent underinvestment in communities that hold little power and have little voice. If we want to create health and improve equity, we must build the power, voice, and organizing ability of these communities. This is not some new and novel idea. Whether it's the civil rights movement, marriage equality, or even seatbelt laws, community organizing is how change happens in America. So I ask you, wherever you are, whatever you do, how can you help reinvigorate democracy? This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information about Dr. Tony Iton and the California Endowment. There's more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <laughs>